Some people take, some people get took, and they know they're getting took, and there's nothing they can do about it. Welcome to the Your Pick Movie Podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We're two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Today on the show, we will be discussing the 1960 film, The Apartment, directed by Billy Wilder and starring Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray. So, um, to start with, Tatum, what is your relationship to The Apartment? Had you seen it before? And what were your thoughts on this rewatch? So, I had seen this movie once before, um, a few years back, maybe three or four years and as Geneva knows, we talked about this a few years ago, and uh, I was not the biggest fan of this movie at the time. Um, it wasn't that I hated it. It wasn't that I thought it was a bad movie. Um, it just was not something that particularly caught my interest. Um, <laughs> and before everybody comes after me, I just want to like say, because I know that's an unpopular opinion. Oh, I didn't like it the first time around. But I am a big Billy Wilder fan. I like Some Like It Hot. I really love Sunset Boulevard. I'm a fan of Sabrina. So I am a Billy Wilder fan. I admire his um, his craft and his stories and all of those things. So I just want to get that like out of the way so people don't hate me. This is a safe um, space. I admitted to not liking um, Holy Grail very much last week, the first time I watched it. <laughs> yeah. So the first time I watched it, I was not uh, a huge fan. This time around, I also am pretty lukewarm on it. I have to be <laughs> honest. All right. Um, yeah, the the first half of the film, if I'm being perfectly honest, I'm just bored in the first half of the movie. Um, the story does not – it doesn't capture my interest the first half of it. I was kind of like, okay, can we move along? I don't really care about anything that's happening. Um, and then the second half of it, I did appreciate more. Um, I did like the, I did like the relationship between, uh, Fran and I always forget the characters names because they call everyone by their last name and they're all really complicated in my opinion. <laughs> um, but Fran and the main guy who Baxter. I don't even think I know what is Baxter. Yes. Um, I did, I did come to appreciate their relationship in the second half, um, but I do think that this time around, I was able to pinpoint why I don't appreciate the movie as much as other people, um, because the first time I, I didn't really know why. This time, I think it's because I – so for me, I'm very sensitive when it comes to uh, portrayals of women in TV shows and movies and their tr and how they're treated – um, I'm very sensitive to those things. And I think in the first half of this movie, there is a lot of um, women are being portrayed as being stupid and like, oh, I'm just this drunk lady at a bar. You're kind of cute. Hey. And then the men don't treat them well. There's men slapping women on the butt like they're objects and talking about them like they're stupid. 
um, you know, men just treating their mistresses like trash. So it's really hard for me to get into stories like that. Um, and especially when it's treated kind of, I don't know, for me, it comes across as kind of maybe trying to be portrayed as a comedy and I don't really find it funny. Um, so yeah, I think it was just hard for me to see women portrayed in that kind of light as a, they're kind of stupid, B, they're sexual objects, and then three, the men kind of, or A, B, and C, <laughs> C, the men kind of just not treating them well and the men being assholes, in my opinion. Um, and I don't think the movie shies away from that. I think it does acknowledge that the men are assholes, um, but all the same, it's hard for me to kind of watch that. So when the second half is a little bit more for lack of a better word, humane. It's just between Fran and Baxter, and it's just the two of them for the most part. Um, I don't know. I feel like you start to see human beings as opposed to just objects walking around that are just being sexist and stupid and annoying. So yeah, just to circle back to what I said before, I don't hate this film. Uh, I don't think it's a bad movie. I admire the craft of it. I there's some there's some shots in here that I think are beautiful. Um, I really like the acting performances and the costumes. And yeah, it's a very well made film. Uh, just for me, I'm very lukewarm on it uh, because of everything that I just said. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I certainly understand that. And it, it's funny, you know, as you're saying these things, you know, and this, well, I should say, you know, obviously, I picked this movie, I like this movie, I, I won't say that this is one of the sort of, you know, top 10 most meaningful movies to me in terms of some something that I've returned to many times over the years, I've probably only seen it two or three times prior to this. Um, but it's just one where I really, really admire the craft. And um, returning to it this time, you know, after not having seen it for a few years, I was really just bowled over by how relevant it is, in my opinion, to the the 21st century in so many ways. And I, I mean, I'm a huge Billy Wilder fan. Um, I definitely have not seen, you know, nearly all of his, <laughs> um, have not seen his entire filmography. There are many blind spots that I have, but every one of his films that I've seen, I loved. And I love in particular about him, the way he can dabble in so many different genres. I really admire directors that can do that. I think he just has a fantastic control of tone. And basically everything that you're saying about this movie, about the turn that it takes from this sort of more comedic, lighthearted, but in a way that's very uncomfortable um, first half where women are kind of viewed through this lens of, um, you know, as this more objectifying lens toward the second half where all of a sudden those consequences start coming into play. I, that's a hundred percent intentional in my opinion. Um, well, I shouldn't say in my opinion, I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> and I think that Billy Wilder I, just does I it would so agree with that, by the yeah. way, I would agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think Billy Wilder just does it so fantastically. You know, I, I think the the transformation that Baxter undergoes where he is, you know, hobnobbing with the executives and he's borrowing their phrases and their languages, or their phrases and their um, the excuses that they make, you know, he'll multiple times 
one of them will say something about the way they interact with women and then Baxter himself repeats it. And um, usually in a context where it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you, why are you saying that? That's horrible. Um, um, yeah, the, it, it's, it's so pointed, I think in the, um, the fact that it is Baxter realizing that this sort of male dominated corporatized capitalistic um, seeing people as objects and tools in a machine to be exploited and manipulated that that sort of lifestyle has real consequences. You know, there's, there's human detritus that comes along um, because of that in the person of Fran. And then in the second half is where he, he grows up essentially. And he finally learns how to, um, stand up for himself. He learns how to really take on, you know, values and integrity and say, no, I'm going to be seeing people as other people as human. I'm going to be treating women as human. I'm going to be refusing to um, be a part of this system that just chews people up and spits them out and has no regard for um, the women who might be hurt along the way. So yeah, I, all that is to say is um, I really do love this movie. I, th I think the craft is immaculate. You know, as you said, the acting is wonderful. Jack Jack Lemon is you know he's fantastic. He his the way he can shuffle between comedy and drama is wonderful. Um, but just in particular, Shirley MacLaine. I mean, what a star making performance this is. She's just absolutely everything in this movie. And Fred McMurray. You know, he's it's so funny seeing that sort of, you know, affable Disney dad that he played so often. He, he when he weaponizes that and turns does a turns in a villain role like he does in Double Indemnity, he's he's always so good. So anyway, yeah, all that is to say is I really really like this movie. I totally understand why it can be very difficult to see these things portrayed on screen and you know, different different take tastes are all legitimate, but um it's just one that's very meaningful to me. And I think has a lot to speak into today's culture. And I can see that I can see how it's meaningful. I can see how it speaks into today's culture. I, I see all of those things. I think just because it, it touches on a, on a subject matter that for me in particular is difficult to watch. Uh, it just makes it harder for me, but uh, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you're <laughs> saying. It's just for me because it's within that realm of things, it's harder for me to stay focused for a long time because I just think to myself, wh why do I want to keep watching this? I, I just, I'm not enjoying watching people act like this and behave like this and treat other people like this. So um, yeah, I think, I think that transformation and that shift in the second half is very meaningful. And I think that there is a lesson to be learned there and it's done well. Um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's difficult for me at times. So yeah. Yeah. Yep. Totally. And totally also, and respect it. And I would like to shout out, I think before when I was listing Billy Wilder movies that I liked, I forgot to say, uh, double indemnity. I absolutely love that film as well. So double indemnity <laughs> yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big Billy Wilder fan. I am a Billy Wilder fan, mm -hmm. which by the way, <laughs> one note that I took down while I was watching this movie is, um, Maybe this is just my brain that wants to make connections with things, but I feel like this movie is kind of a culmination of the Billy Wilder cinematic universe in many ways, where you have um, you have Fred McMurray playing a selfish insurance 
uh, related person, as in double indemnity. Um, you have a husband who is looks to begin an affair while his wife and children are away for the summer, which is uh, the seven-year itch. You have a woman who looks like Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe obviously was in two movies that Billy Wilder had previously made. You also have a reference to A Lost Weekend, which is a Billy Wilder film. Um, anyway, yeah, just my brain making connections. Geneva's a nerd, you guys. <laughs> you haven't realized it yet. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, should we get into the plot a little bit? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, let's do it. Okay. So we open, it's New York of the late 50s, early 60s, kind of Mad Men era. Cece Baxter, who is played by Jack Lemmon, is a lowly office drone trying to climb the ladder at a huge insurance company. It's a mechanized, corporatized atmosphere, and the only source of joy in his daily routine is his interactions with Fran Kubelik, played by Shirley MacLaine, who is a charming but mysterious elevator girl, and Baxter has a big crush on her. In the evenings, Baxter loans out the key to his apartment to several managers at his company uh, as a place where they can go to take their mistresses so they don't have to pay for a, a hotel or a motel. This state of affairs is pretty miserable for Baxter. When the movie is op- opens, uh, one manager has overstayed his time, and he keeps Baxter wandering around on a rainy night until almost 9 o'clock, Baxter gets home, starts having a lowly TV dinner, goes to bed, and then only a couple hours later, he's dragged out of bed again because another manager has met a woman at the bar who, quote, looks like Marilyn Monroe. And she's also doing a pretty decent Marilyn Monroe vocal impression, too, by the way. So to make matters worse, Baxter's neighbors are all disgusted with him. They don't realize that the sounds of, you know, people partying and doing other things in his apartment are not Baxter. Uh, they all they think that he's just this absolute ladies man and you know he's just going out and picking up women at bars and bringing a different woman home every night so um yeah they're all just really disturbed by his behavior um just in this opening um part um i mean tatum you mentioned the cinematography before the way that the uh, offices depicted with the rows and rows and rows of desks with the exact same machine uh, machinery, people doing things at the same time. The um, Baxter's uh, voiceover where he discusses how I think the the workday starts at eight fifty and ends at five twenty, and you know so that they can control the flow of people in and out. It's just this <laughs> absolute, you know the corporation as this giant machine and all the human beings are just cogs in the machine. There's this lifelessness to it. You know, Baxter comes home and he, he sits down and he makes his TV dinner. He, um, uh, it's just this very sort of isolating and, um, very mechanized existence. Um, you know, that, that is one thing that just immediately struck me as being, uh, very relevant and understandable in our day. You know, the the technologies have changed, but that sort of attitude, I think, is not, I don't know. What did you think about this opening? Yeah, um, I thought that it did a good job of just setting the stage and letting you know who who this Baxter character is, but also how he relates to this world around him um, and what his goals are and what his motivations are, which I think is really cool. Um 
Yeah, I mean, I I wrote down a few things. You kind of touched on the on the scenes in which these happened, so I can just kind of mention them real quick. Um, but I just noted how that that typing office or whatever you call it mm-hmm. is huge. That is so so big. I'm assuming that's a real office, and that's all real background and everything. Like, I just can't even imagine. Also, Baxter's character says that he makes $947 a week. I'm pretty sure that's like a lot of money, right? If we were to adjust for inflation nowadays, that's probably a lot, right? <laughs> Are you sure that was per week? Uh, I'm pretty sure the quote was per week. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to go back right and all I I'd remember is back that and his, rewatch it. <laughs> all I remember is that his rent was $85 a month. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying, because I feel like that adds an interesting, I mean, even, yeah, I just feel like that adds an interesting dynamic of if it is $947 a week, which adjusted to whatever that would be now, which is, would be a lot of money. I think that makes it interesting as to, as to why he's still wanting to climb this ladder and get higher up in the company when he's already pretty well off. Um, So I thought that that was just an interesting uh, question and adding a little bit more depth to his character. Um, And then (laughs) I wrote down that I thought that it was super relatable how when he goes home and he's watching TV with his TV dinner and stuff, he also hates ads in the middle of his uh, watching process as much as we do (laughs) because there's these clips of him just flipping through the channels and he's like, ah, I'll go back to what I was watching before. And then there's an ad and he's like, ah, forget it. (laughs) So I thought, I thought that that was uh, relatable to now. Um, And then just, sorry, just, yeah, I I was just looking it up while you were talking. He -hmm. he makes uh, 9470, not 974. Oh, yeah. So according to to IMDb um, in 2014 that worked out to about forty thousand dollars a year so it's a okay kind of yeah it's a not great it's a livable not great salary okay yeah that's very different from 947 dollars a week (laughs) i was like that Um, doesn't sound right (laughs) yeah okay well thank you for that uh that was a good problem check (laughs) but Um, continue with your point (laughs) yeah um yeah and then just a few more comments um i thought it was funny how when he's like at home watching watching the tv and then he gets the phone call from the guy asking him to leave his apartment and he's like, oh, I'm already home. I want to go to sleep. And then the guy on the other side, he says, it's only 11 p.m. And my thought is, I, I mean, maybe this is just me being old, but I'm just thinking 11 p.m. on a weeknight. Are you kidding me? That's freaking late, dude. Like, like why is that manager even to out of the bar trying to pick up a woman? Like, I think that that's a legitimate question. Um, yes. And then the last the last thought I have for this opening section is um, I, I think I said before that I really admire the cinematography in this movie. I think for me, the most impactful shot out of the whole movie comes out of this, this scene when um, I, th- I think the, the, the man and his mistress or whatever, they're showing up at the apartment after Baxter has vacated it for them to go in and and go up. And there's this whole thing of Baxter is down the stairs on a lower level, farther away from the camera. Mm -hmm. And then the couple, they're walking right in front of the camera and then they go up the stairs and they're in focus and they go inside and then it racks focus to Baxter. I just thought that that shot 
was really, really beautiful and also telling a lot of Baxter's character, especially in the first half of the movie. You know, he's got his his hat and he's looking down and his coat that's a dark color and he's looking mm-hmm. at his feet. And yeah, I just really, really liked that shot a lot. I thought it was beautiful and it and it seemed very well thought through and I thought it communicated a lot about the story and, and his character. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Also, can we give uh, props to the production designer of the apartment itself? Because that place is, it's sort of simultaneously so perfect for kind of a a lonely bachelor. It's a little bit cramped. It's a little bit messy. Um, you know, it's clearly in, I, I think they say it's in kind of the Upper West Side part of New York. And, you know, you look at it, you look at that gorgeous wood paneling and um, decorative work, and you're like, that thing would be worth like $2 million at least today. Um, and that thing is so gorgeous. But you can also tell that it's, you know, it's a bit older, it's a bit shabbier. It's all his neighbors seem to be kind of um, maybe sort of ethnic sort of immigrant community that he's living in. Um, you know, it, it's very much a sort of lo- lower working class neighborhood that he's in and um yeah that apartment just communicates it all so beautifully you know it's so beautifully staged um for the the compositions the way the the bedroom is in the background and the the doorway is in the foreground and so he can have you know people coming in while things are going on in the bedroom or in the kitchen yeah it's it's just beautifully beautifully designed um and um yeah, so uh, I was trying to think if there's anything else that I wanted to say about uh, the opening. Oh, sorry, you mentioned the the scene where he sits down to watch TV. That scene absolutely cracked me up because it's he, you know, he's sitting down to watch this classy movie. You know, it's full of stars. It's Greta Garbo. You know, it's John Gilbert. It's this movie that was, I believe, you know, Grand Hotel. I believe was a Best Picture winner back in the 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 30s. Didn't but before you had Joan, didn't it say Joan Crawford I too? Think so yeah, Joan Crawford, you know, like all the, the big stars of that sort of, you know, would have been 30 years prior to this movie, 20 to 30 years prior to this movie being made. Um, I think it says something, you know, maybe it's based on a book or something like that. But before you can get to this, you know, actual bit of, uh, you know, legitimate classy entertainment you have to get through all of these commercials and then he tries to flip the channel and all the everything on the other channels is just violence you know it's all people shooting each other and punching each other and i was just like well things have not changed (laughs) at all nope like i said relatable (laughs) (laughs) all right so um so the managers who have been borrowing baxter's apartment um as kind of a you know, quid pro quo, they give some glowing recommendations um, of Baxter to the higher levels at the company. And that brings Baxter to the attention of Jeff Sheldrake, who's played by Fred McMurray. Sheldrake is an upper level executive. Um, he works in personnel. He brings Baxter up to his apartment and kind of does this song and dance about how, you know, he's learned about this whole deal with the apartment and he's really disturbed about how there's these bad apples at the company who are corrupting their morals. And then as soon as Baxter gets really uncomfortable and promises never to lend the key again, Sheldrick is like, oh, but actually I want the key. Um, So Baxter, of course, is like, yeah, sure. I'd love to have this upper level executive on my side. 
So Sheldrake um, uh, gives Baxter two tickets for this musical in exchange for the key. Um, and, you know, he's going to you know, bring his mistress there for the night. Baxter is overjoyed. And so he goes to Fran again, who's this um, elevator operator that he's got a big crush on. And he invites her to go with him. So she's kind of charmed by him, but um, she's also not quite sure. She says she has to meet up with a former boyfriend that night, um, but she agrees to go out with him after that. But then she, when the the f- film follows her to her meeting with the former boyfriend, da, 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 that former boyfriend turns out to be Sheldrake. So the two of them had this affair over the summer while Sheldrake's wife and ch- children were out of the city. Um, Sheldrake tells her that he's still crazy about Fran and he plans to divorce his wife. And Fran is a bit taken aback by this. She kind of knows that it's a bad idea to be getting involved with a married man, but she does genuinely love Sheldrake against her will. And so she agrees to resume their relationship on the understanding that he actually is going to get a divorce with, um, from his wife. And she ends up standing Baxter up because of it. So thoughts on this scene? Let me just say that I feel like, (laughs) so this is our first episode that we've done where we kind of have differing opinions on Mm -hmm. the movie. So, but I think because I'm not, because I don't passionately hate this movie, I'm just kind of lukewarm on it. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) I'd like it. Like, I think that that's a good thing, but also a bad thing in terms of the podcast, because I have a lot (laughs) less to say, because it's not like, oh, I hate this. Let's talk about it and rant about it for 10 minutes. It's just like, uh, okay. So all that being said, I feel like I I have two things to say, and they're both very brief. uh, And then I'll (laughs) let Geneva take over, I guess. Um, But one of them is I really need to start calling people buddy boy because (laughs) whoever that character is, and then he like spreads it around. He's the first one to call Baxter buddy boy. And then all of a sudden everyone, all the executives Mm -hmm. start calling him that. But every time they said it, it just made me laugh because it's such a, such a 20th century thing to say. Well, it is, but it's, and it's also so perfect, I think, because it's such a kind of faux camaraderie, you know, oh yeah, we're just, you know, equals, you know, I, I'm friends with you, you know, we're totally like in each other's corner. Hey, buddy boy. When in reality, you know, he's, this man is exploiting and manipulating and, um, you know, does not care at all for the, the workers that he's interacting with. So I mean, it could even be seen as, I don't even know your name. I'm just going to call you buddy boy because <laughs> yeah, that's go. what I call people whose name I don't know. <laughs> yep. So yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a very strategic reason as to why he calls him that, but I just think it's a funny, <laughs> a funny phrase. I mean, nowadays it probably would be, I don't know, bro or something or probably. buddy. People say buddy a lot now, just like my buddies, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, yeah, I just thought if that that was- If he was you would call him old sport old sport yes um which i'm pretty sure that's never been a phrase ever other than in the great gatsby um don't fact check me on that i probably i'm wrong but anyway (laughs) um so yeah and then my my second thought is i actually really think it's super cute how baxter asks her out because it's it's the right level of persistence. It's not like, hey, you told me no, and I'm just going to keep forcing myself on you, even though you've said no. It's very much so a cute, 
dynamic of I can tell that you're not fully opposed and you're kind of interested. So I'm going to keep pushing a little bit, but in a cheeky sort of way that's really sweet and kind. And but also I'm kind of nervous and I don't know. And and she's kind of super witty and how she's responding to what I'm saying. I just feel like the way that scene is written, it's I just think it's written really well. And I think that the way that they acted out and how they interact with each other, I just I just feel a vibe between the two of them. I feel like they have a lot of chemistry as actors and that comes across in the characters and it feels believable to me. Um, but yeah, I just love the way that scene is written, how it's acted. And I think it's, it's really sweet and it's really cute. Um, and it makes me want to ride elevators more because who knows, (laughs) you you never know who you're going to bump into, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which speaking of which I had this thought while watching, and this is completely not important at all, but I was like, what exactly is the purpose of an elevator girl in the context of this, uh, where it's just about pushing buttons? But then it occurred to me the elevators in this huge building probably don't have any sort of you know, computer system to maximize efficiency. And so maybe there's some sort of training that goes into figuring out how to you know, get that number of people up and down at a, the, the appropriate time. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll let it go. But it was kind of funny when you see her in there and all she's doing is pressing buttons with her little little uniform. I thought that was a pretty common thing at the time. Like if the if it's a high class place or something, but maybe I'm just thinking of hotels. But I feel like it was pretty normal. It was. It was. I feel like and don't quote me on this. I could be wrong. I think elevators when they were first invented were also a little bit more complicated. There were kind of levers involved. You know, you had to be manually opening and closing the door. So it made more sense to me to have a person there to do that, make sure that people weren't, you know, handling it wrong or getting caught in, you know, the cracks and things like that. This one seems a lot, a little bit more automated. Geneva, but have you ever tried to operate an elevator with buttons? It's really quite difficult. <laughs> Tatum goes to an elevator and she's like Buddy the Elf from uh, Elf and yeah. she just presses every button. Presses all <laughs> of get there them. At some point. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Anyway, I... So, yeah. I, uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let you take over and, and give uh, your comments because I'm sure you have much more to say than I do. Well, I mean, we've, we've got a lot of movie left, so we've got to pace ourselves. But I definitely could not agree with you more on how adorable the two of them are. And I think, you know, I was really struck, you know, rewatching this movie about, again, like I said, how much of a master of tone I think Billy Wilder is um, because they're... Jack Lemmon at this point of the movie, he's so kind of, you know, this is a testament to Billy Wilder, but also to the performances of the actors, because Jack Lemmon is so, he's so happy-go-lucky, he's kind of neurotic, he's a little bit self-centered, but in kind of a charming way, you know, he's kind of a a very sort of comedic, energetic presence, and Shirley MacLaine is bringing this very different energy, where she's very cool, she's very self-possessed, she's very reserved, And you can see kind of hints peeking through where she's very charmed by him, but she's also very wary. You know, you can get this sense even before you learn about more about her backside, uh, backstory that she's been damaged. More about her backside. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Whoa. (laughs) Freudian slip. Edit that out. Um, More about. There's no way I'm editing that out. (laughs) There's no way. Um. Great. Now I've lost my train of thought. Um, Sorry. <laughs> more about her backstory that she was 
has been damaged in the past, but you don't, you don't really get a whole lot of that yet. Um, but you can also tell that she's very charmed by him, you know, and that they, they have this potential to balance each other out really well. Um, and so, yeah. And like you say, it's, you know, he's a little bit, he's very persistent. He's maybe a little bit too eager, but also in a very, very charming way. But then I was just so struck by the contrast between their scenes, which are much more comedic. And then the scene in which Fran goes to have dinner with Sheldrake and the tone of that is just so different. It's so much more grounded. Um, I think the two of them are fantastic in that scene where they're, you can tell that there's, you know, history there, that there's sort of genuine feeling and genuine pain. I think, um, you know, Fran's sort of combination of, you know, she she really does love Sheldrake, but she knows that she shouldn't and she knows it's a terrible idea and that it's going to end badly, but she can't help how she feels. And she wants to believe him, even though she knows that he's probably not on the level. It's just, it's very adult and grounded in this way that is so different from her interactions with Baxter. But I think because the the tone of this movie is just so well balanced, those two things are able to exist next to each other. And, you know, over time, the movie kind of gradually moves from the more comedic to the more grounded, but there's, it's still able to kind of bounce between the two and, and keep this balance. You know, this movie, I was trying to think about how would you type the genre of this movie? Because in in many ways it's a rom com. You know, it's kind of one of the one of the great rom coms of all time. But it's also very dramatic. It deals with very very heavy um, themes and things that happen. Which, by the way, um, I probably should at the top should have said at the top. But um, if anyone is not familiar with the plot of uh, the apartment. Please do be aware that it deals with uh, suicide and suicide attempts. And so if that's something that is um, a sensitive spot for you, you may not want to listen to uh, the plot summary of the second half of this movie, because um, that's something that will be come up quite a bit. But yeah, this movie is it, it gets very dark, um, but it's also able to balance that with a lot of lightness and keep it kind of from becoming too depressing. I find it to be interesting that you talk about genre because for me, I don't consider this movie to be a rom-com at all, which maybe in the grand zeitgeist of whatever people think it's a rom-com and I'm the odd person out. But for me, maybe it's because I don't find a lot of it funny. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, this is just blah. Um, like I don't think looking at stupid women is funny or men being sleazebags is funny or I mean not that that's the only things that are portrayed as funny there are some things that I thought were funny in this movie but when I finished it I I would never consider this movie to be a rom-com at all I would call it a drama that happens to have a romance in it but I I definitely would I don't to me I don't I don't take away rom-com at all yeah yeah like I mean like like I say it's just it's difficult to characterize because it's it's almost too light to call a drama, but it's definitely too heavy to call, you know, just a rom-com without qualifying it, in my opinion. Anyway, um, also just random note, you know, along with the apartment, that Chinese restaurant is just so, the production design is amazing. I really want to go there. Um, just looks like a great place to get a booth and celebrate New Year's, incredibly depressing New Year's Eve. 
<laughs> so for those who don't know, Geneva was just living in Scotland last year uh, doing her master's degree. And she would just go to pubs and sit and read. And Geneva <laughs> is known to do this. She does it in Scotland. She does it in the U.S. She does it everywhere. Guys, so <laughs> going to restaurants and pubs and bars by yourself and reading, it's great. I don't know why if anyone wants to have an understanding of Geneva's personality, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Although, Geneva, have you done this? Have you done that at a Chinese restaurant? Maybe you need to uh, add that to your to your list to my repertoire yeah absolutely yeah um I'll, I'll take a look around see what's out there the clock's ticking i don't know what it's counting to but but it's <laughs> it's ticking towards something <laughs> all right so moving on in the plot um sometime later at the company's rowdy christmas eve party a very tipsy baxter tells fran that he has forgiven her for standing him up However, when he sees Fran using a broken hand mirror that was left at his apartment, he realizes that she is the one who's been seeing Sheldrake. At the same party, Fran ran, runs into Sheldrake's secretary, Miss Olson, who tells her that Sheldrake has had flings with many other women in the office, including Miss Olson herself, and each time he promised to divorce his wife. Heartbroken, Fran meets up with Sheldrake at Baxter's apartment and confronts him. Sheldrake insists that, no, 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 Fran is different. Then he gives her $100 to buy herself a Christmas present, and then he leaves to uh, catch the train home and return to his family for the holiday. Baxter, meanwhile, gets extremely drunk at a bar, meets a similarly depressed woman, and takes her back to his apartment. When he gets there, however, he discovers that Fran has tried to kill herself by taking an overdose of sleeping pills. Uh, Baxter kicks out the woman, and he goes to his next-door neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus, to beg for help. The two of them manage to save Fran's life. Dr. Dreyfus assumes that Baxter is the cause of her suicide attempt, and Baxter, who is anxious to protect both her and Sheldrake's reputations, acts like, um, you know, he's just a kind of a careless philanderer. Dreyfus is very disapproving, and he urges Baxter to be a mensch. All right. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of the, the turning point in the movie. Um, to me where, you know, previously we'd see Baxter in his sort of, you know, brown nosing, oh, kind of laugh along with the executives. Like, you know, they would talk about how they have their, you know, can't keep, got to keep my wife from finding out about my mistress. So I picked up this woman and she's drunk and we're going to go have a good time. And he's kind of like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, got to, what it is, it is. Um, but this is the, the point where he comes home and he, he realizes that all of these things have an actual cost and that there's a very real person who he cares about and he sees her vulnerability and he sees that um, the that attitude is something that is just extremely damaging. And I, the, the use of the neighbors in uh, Baxter's neighbors in this movie, I was really struck by on this rewatch Um just the the contrast between their attitudes toward the way Baxter lives his life and his goals and his um, the attitude that he has, you know, every time he tries to sort of imitate something that his um, one of the executives that he knows has said or the way that they act, they're just horrified. They're just like, what are you talking about? That's the worst thing I've ever heard. You know, you shouldn't treat people like that. But at the same time, they're very caring of Baxter. You know, they're very sort of um, 
protective of him in a weird way. They kind of, um, you know, they ask about his life. They're, they interact with him, lend him things. Um, Dreyfus obviously is there and he's, he gets involved when, um, when there's, there's an issue and he, um, checks up on the, on them. Um, there's just, I, I feel like there's a real humanity and kind of sense of community in his apartment building among his neighbors that is not present in the, the company that he works at. Yes. Yeah, I'm like pausing to see if you had any thoughts on that because I was like, wait, what do I want to talk about next? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have things to talk about, but nothing in relation to that comment. So I didn't want to jump in and be like, so here's a different thing that I want to say. <laughs> gotcha. Well, if you had a note or anything from this section, uh, feel free. Yeah, so um, I I had a few other different thoughts about this section um, that I can dive into. But one of them is, okay, first of all, is this a Christmas movie? <laughs> because <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> because I feel like there's so many people that make that argument that Die Hard is a Christmas movie just because it takes place at Christmas time. And I'm not saying whether or not I agree with that, but I'm saying if the fact that a movie takes place at Christmas time means that it's a Christmas movie, is the apartment therefore a Christmas movie? <laughs> so, the apartment, I'm so glad you said that because that was definitely on my list of things to talk about. And I <laughs> had not realized this until this rewatch. And it definitely joins my list of favorite genre of Christmas movies, which is a kind of rom-com adjacent, but also secretly very melancholy and about lonely people trying to reach out to other people around the holidays movies that are set around Christmas, um, which is uh, The Shop Around the Corner and While You Were Sleeping. They're all kind of in that same um same genre and it's just it's such a it's such a good genre such a good underrated type of christmas movie you know so geneva you are going on the record saying that the apartment is a christmas movie i would yes the apartment is a christmas movie you do not have to watch the apartment only around christmas <laughs> but uh, only at christmas can you watch this movie <laughs> some uh, could definitely be seen um viewed productively within the context of christmas Right. Yeah. So in the same kind of subject line as the Christmas party, I just felt like I had to mention there's some really awkward old school kissing going on at this Christmas <laughs> party. <laughs> you know, that I mean, there's literally a scene where I think Baxter, maybe it's not Baxter, but someone's like, no, it is Baxter. He's in an office, then he's walking around the corner and it's a pretty long take. And there's literally two people leaning against the glass wall, like holding their faces in the same position, maybe slightly moving their faces every two seconds, but they're just holding there for, <laughs> gosh, I don't know, 20 plus seconds. I mean, it felt like it was forever. What, I was just thinking your makeout style. No. <laughs> Is it anyone's? I don't think it's anyone's makeout style anywhere. But I was just thinking about just being a background actor who's being paid very little money because you have no lines and you're just told, yeah, so you're going to stand there and just hold your face against someone else's face until I call cut. No, no, no. Don't move. Don't move. Just hold it. There. <laughs> um, And then 
There was another awkward kiss too. I think when he came down and he was like exiting the elevator or something. I don't know. But they were just so awkward that I had to say something about it. It was pretty extreme. So, <laughs> yeah, it definitely made me uncomfortable. Uh, but, yeah. It's made me think of, um, made me really want to rewatch Mad Men. Remember Mad Men's um, insane office Christmas parties? Yes, they had some good ones. They really uh, did. But no, no awkward kissing. They had lots of other awkward moments, but not, <laughs> not awkward kissing. Um, speaking of Mad Men... This is a super meta thing, and it's probably not real, but is Peggy Olsen in Mad Men, like, a reference to Miss Olsen in this movie, who's a secretary? I don't know. know. Probably not, but I feel like... Secretary who sleeps with, well, I mean, Peggy never sleeps with the boss, but she definitely sleeps with um, Pete from the office, so... I mean, he's technically a boss, but... In, in terms of his job, not in terms of his character. He's definitely not a boss in terms yeah. of his character at all. Um, but yeah, I just thought that I feel like the I, I forget the name of the creator of Mad Men, but I feel like he has definitely seen the movie The Apartment. So I just was thinking oh, that'd be kind of cool if he named Peggy after this character. But yeah. Uh, and then, OK, so I have two more thoughts. One is I really appreciate how realistically long it takes to revive Fran Mm. because I feel like there are other movies where it would just be like, Hey, let's have her drink a glass of water or the doctor just comes in and slaps her face. And then she's healed in five seconds. This was something where it was, it was kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for. It was kind of gory of them. Like Mm. you see Dr. Dreyfus walking in with this stomach pump and then you hear her vomiting and then he's, pretty violently slapping her awake, Mm -hmm. all these things. And so I really appreciated that they were willing to take the time to show, I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how realistic this is, how they're reviving her, but just the fact that it takes a long time, I think, I don't know. I just think it's very, um, I think it's very smart. And I think that it just, gives you a taste of kind of the gravity of the situation of how unwell she actually was. Like she was, she was past the point of no return and they had to do all of these extremes in order to get her back to normal. So um, yeah, I just, I appreciated that. And I feel like as a, as a director or a writer, you have to be, I don't know, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of self-control to write a scene like that. That is that slow. It didn't feel slow, but just the, the, the process of her being revived was slow. So mm-hmm. yeah. And then I guess kind of related to that, my favorite character in this movie is Dr. Dreyfus, by the way. I think he's fantastic. I think he's a dose of realism in the whole thing. He's kind of the one who keeps everything grounded and he's also really smart and funny and loving. Even It's tough love, but he's a super loving guy who I feel like genuinely cares And there aren't a lot of people in this movie who genuinely care about anyone else. So he was refreshing and quite funny and sweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his wife is as well. I mean, we will, um, she hasn't shown up yet, but uh, she will show up shortly. Um, You know, they have a clearly uh, two of probably the best possible people for Baxter to have as neighbors in terms of contact with how you should be acting toward other people. 
can you can you imagine what their conversations are like at home because he's like shouting up the stairs every like baxter's every move or people who he thinks are baxter so he's probably like another one and then they go upstairs and have this really long gossipy conversation just spilling all the tea although it's probably not even i mean it's not real tea because they don't know what's actually going on but i feel like they probably just have lots of conversations where I don't know. I just think Baxter is probably one of their main sources of entertainment. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, what else? Can you imagine how thin the walls in that apartment building probably are? I'm sure everyone in that no. apartment building hates him. <laughs> all they can hear. <laughs> Ugh, we've all been there, right? Oh, boy. Miss <laughs> <laughs> um, Olson, you mentioned Miss Olson. I find her a really interesting character. Um, the way that she is sort of Fran from the past, but has kind of chosen a different or ha- has processed the experience of being used and discarded by Sheldrake very differently, where it has kind of hardened her. And, um, and I don't say that necessarily in a, a judgmental way. I actually kind of, um, I, I, kind of like her in this movie in certain ways. I certainly like the fact that she, uh, spoiler alert, after she gets fired, is goes kind of torched earth and is like, well, I'm finally going to tell his wife what a horrible person he is. Um, but there is also a kind of heartlessness to the way that she tells Fran and just kind of spills to her everything that Sheldrake has done and just destroys all of her illusions in one go. And I think she, you know, you know, she's doing it because she's drunk and jealous. But I think in a way, too, she also thinks that she's doing a doing Fran a favor, which in a certain to a certain degree, she is. I mean, she is telling her the truth, but she is also doing it in this very intentionally hurtful way. But um, yeah, I, I, I find her very interesting. Um, the fact that she would uh, be willing to continue as Sheldrake's secretary for so long, I think they said it was four years that they had um, they had been broken up, and yet she continues to work for him and do his bidding, even though she clearly has this sort of unresolved feelings toward him. I didn't I didn't read her character that way at all. Oh, interesting. Um, How did you read her? No i I thought that she was I thought that she was kind of. I felt that it was it was a female camaraderie thing of, you know, we were kind of sisters bonded by trauma. We've both fallen in love with this man and he has betrayed us, but you don't know it yet. So I feel like out of solidarity, I need to tell you what's going on. It didn't it didn't seem like she was saying anything to hurt her. Um, but maybe that's just the way that the way that I read it, um, because, again, I'm I'm very sensitive to women being portrayed in, in certain ways. And so I feel like for me watching this movie, so many of the women are just portrayed negatively that I was looking for <laughs> a woman to be doing something genuine and real. And so for me, I read it as she's been hurt and she wants to let Fran know what's going on too before it's too late. Um, so yeah, I, I find it interesting that you say that. And also the same thing at the end when she goes to Sheldrake's wife. It's I just feel like it's a solidarity thing and and the I don't know, it's it's the last straw. It was the straw that broke the camel's back and she just realized this the fact that I'm not speaking up is causing a perpetual problem 
And if you think about, you know, you might think, why did she stick around for four years? I mean, it's similar to the dynamic of, of things that we see today, you know, of I'm working for a super powerful person. I don't want to speak up because if I do, I don't know what's going to happen. And especially as a woman in the 1960s, I can't imagine there were as many jobs available. So it could be like, if I leave this place, I don't know where I might end up. I need to provide for myself. And so I'm just going to kind of lie low, keep this job and act like I'm fine, even though I'm not because this man did this, but he's powerful. And I don't know. I Maybe I'm reading way too much into this, but <laughs> but for me, I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't see her character as as being um I don't know the word I'm looking for, but it she didn't seem scheming to me. She just seemed like a complex character who has been through a lot and finally something snaps and she's she's like, No, I'm gonna support the women who are also affected by this piece of shit man, in my opinion. <laughs> so not yeah, an opinion, maybe it's that an is absolute me. unvarnished truth. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's me reading too much into it, but I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I think um I, I don't disagree with you. I think that's a, a valid reading. I think for me, it's a bit of both. You know, I think she is doing this out of solidarity with, you know, I know where you've been, Fran, and I know how sort of starry eyed and how willing to kind of ignore the red, red flags you can be because he is so charming. Um, and it, it does feel so good at the beginning. And, it you know, he does make it so easy to believe him when he says he's going to divorce his wife. But I think there is also just in the way the actress plays it, I think there's also jealousy, you know, I think she could have done it in a different way. I don't think she necessarily had to wait until she was drunk at an office party to spill the beans. Um, I think it's yeah, I, I think it's both, you know, that there is, it's partly out of concern for the other women he hurts, but it's also in part her own hurt feelings and sense of kind of just jealousy and vindictiveness toward um, Sheldrake, you know, 100% justified vindictiveness toward Sheldrake, uh, who is a piece of shit. Yes, he sucks. Um, Let me just say one quick thing before we move on. I know that this is preachy, but I just feel like I need to say it. If someone is drunk, man or woman, it's not – don't take advantage of them. That's not consensual. People cannot say yes or no when they are – uh, incapacitated and inebriated. So just just need to throw that out there because we see a lot of men in this movie <laughs> having, in my opinion, non-consensual sex with very drunk women. So uh, not that it's always women, it can be men too, but just yeah. throwing that yeah. out there. There's also a lot of drunk people having, like mutually drunk people having terrible drunk sex. That is a bad idea and is not good. But yes, in particular, I mean, this entire movie is about the way that you know, men in positions of power seduce and prey on women and, you know, use the the wealth that they have, the sort of social influence that they have um, to take what they want. You know, it's, um, it's that sort of exploitation of power that they hold over um, Baxter, our point of view character. You know, Baxter is being used and manipulated by these people to get what they want. And Baxter is fine with it as long as that he feels like he can also get what he wants out of this situation. But then he, you know, as as the movie goes on, he starts to realize, you know, the the true awfulness of the system that he's participating in. And yeah, anyway. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and just to kind of circle back to something that I've already said several times, but just to reiterate, this movie is difficult for me to watch because not only are the men portrayed in that light, but it also, there's so many women here where it's, it just, I don't know. I feel like it plays into this stereotype that women are naive enough or emotional enough to fall for it. Um, and that just really bothers me that these women all around them are, they don't recognize that these men are terrible until after they've already gotten emotionally involved and blah, 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 because women don't operate with their heads. They operate with their hearts and their emotions and they jump in and they fall in love and the men are just using them for sex and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. There's just a lot of stereotypes in here that I don't like. And I feel like we even see them today in our society of, oh, men watch these things. And so they assume this is how I'm going. This is how I'm going to behave because this is what's normal for men. And then women watch these things and then they think, oh, well, this is how women are and vice versa. Men think those things about women and women think those things about men. And it just creates a lot of, I don't know, just toxic relationships between men and women and men and themselves and women and themselves and both of them in society and um, I don't know. I just don't I don't like those stereotypes being perpetuated, um, no matter how good the story is. So I don't know. Like the, this movie is just difficult for me. Again, I don't hate it. It's just I, I don't like <laughs> it's not like it's. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm curious. Um, what's your interpretation of the relationship the very gross relationship between um i don't know their names but that one manager and his mistress who's the telephone operator because my interpretation of her i I don't know that he ever mentions sort of stringing her along by promising a relationship for me it was it seemed like it was more she's with him because he has money and so she can get what she wants which is just a wealthy boyfriend to take her out to restaurants and show her a good time type of thing. Like, I don't know that, I don't know, it it is exploitative, you know, because he is in a position of power and she's lower in the, um, at the company. But there is also that sense of, I think she is also getting something that she wants out of it, which is, you know, someone with a bit more money to buy her gifts and, and take her out places, things like that. I don't know. I'm just curious what you thought about, about that gonna be honest i don't remember that (laughs) i I don't remember that (laughs) yeah because i was also very um the the woman that baxter well baxter doesn't pick up at the bar she sort of picks him up or maybe they mutually pick yeah i think she more is more the the initiator of it um but yeah there's there's that super drunk woman when he's also drunk at the bar who's married, but also perfectly happy to take a man home or go to a man's home. Um, it's sort of, too- I mean, all the people in this movie are just terrible. Oh, they really are. <laughs> They're just all terrible people. Every single one of them making terrible really, choices, which is why like categorizing it as romantic comedy. I'm like, I don't think this is funny. All these people suck. And yes, Fran and Baxter are slightly redeemed by the end. And Dr. Dreyfus is cool, but gosh, I just hate all of these people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think we had just a very different senses of humor because I, for me seeing, I think 
Baxter in particular, I mean, I just find Jack's Lemon's Jack Lemon's performance to be very funny at times. You know, when he's intentionally being comedic, not when he's being dramatic, because those scenes are not funny. But um, just the way that he and to me interacts. And to me, he's a pushover. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, ugh. yeah, <laughs> and it's funny, you know, kind of seeing. I don't that- think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of um, painful relatability, I think, about it, you know, and the. It, it's very, it's a very pointed satire at parts, and it is very cynical in certain way. So it's not funny in a sort of light-hearted escapist sense. It's more funny in the these are uncomfortable truths about the world, and we're sort of um, revealing them on the in a way that's a little bit over the top and is a little bit um, is very pointed. But we're also making it okay to. Um, to laugh about, you know, to kind of make fun of how terrible and ridiculous these things are, that sort of thing. I disagree, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying, to be clear, you know, I when I use the term rom-com, that doesn't mean that the movie itself is a comedy in a like, you know, it's not a Mighty Python type <laughs> comedy, you know, there are, there are funny parts, you know, to it, but it's it is still very much a drama in, in many aspects. Anyway, um, all that aside. Uh, Fran spends a few days recuperating in Baxter's apartment and the two slowly grow closer. Baxter, anxious to cheer her up and prevent her from attempting suicide again, suggests a game of gin rummy. While they play, Fran laments that she's always attracted to bad men before she falls asleep. Later, Baxter also tells her that he once tried to shoot himself over a woman, but he only ended up shooting himself in the knee. Baxter also calls Sheldrake and tries to get him to visit, but Sheldrake, wary of letting his family know what is going on, will only talk to her over the phone. Eventually, Fran's brother-in-law arrives looking for Fran, and learning that she attempted suicide, he assumes that Baxter was the cause, and he punches him. Fran kisses Baxter on the forehead and leaves. So this part of the movie, um, I always forget kind of how relatively short it is, but yeah, it's it, it's very sweet um, the way that the two of them interact, the way that they, you know, his sort of anxiousness about how to deal with her is this really great indication of how much he's growing. You know, he's he's very selfless in this part of the movie. You know, he never really tries to, at least in my opinion, you know, he clearly likes her, but he's, he's not trying to make a move on her. He's um, encouraging her to do things or not do things. But my, at least how I read it is it's generally because he thinks that she, this is what she wants, or he thinks that this is what's best for her in terms of, you know, trying to keep the news about what happened quiet. So she doesn't have to deal with a lot of intrusive eyes. Uh, You know, he thinks, um, he's er, encourages Sheldrake to talk to her, hoping that that will help, which of course it doesn't really because <laughs> Sheldrake is incapable of saying anything that's comforting, but you know, like Baxter doesn't do everything perfectly, but it, he really does try. Um, and in particular, just the, the scene where he goes through his medicine cabinet and is removing all the razors and, um, just kind of generally looking around and trying to make sure that everything is safe um yeah it's it's very very dark and but also very sweet in a way um like i i I don't know how to really talk about something that that that's that dark um but yeah he you know he he really does care about her in a way 
something that I wanted to just talk about, I guess, briefly was there were two lines in this. Well, so first of all, this is kind of the turning point in the movie when I actually started to enjoy it and I wasn't bored Um, (laughs) because this is when we really start to dive into the relationship between Baxter and Fran, which I find um, is very easy to get drawn into. But there were two lines in the the scene when he's kind of sitting by her bedside as she wakes up and everything and, and they're playing the card game. And the classic line that we have seen in so many different movies and also life situations is why can't it why can't it ever fall in love with someone nice like you automatic friend zone I it it just (laughs) it broke my heart to hear that it yeah it's, it's another one of those moments where it's like we've all been there so I felt that that was like oh that's rough um and then also I loved his line in one it at one point in that scene. And I think it comes up later and I would like to start saying it in my everyday life, which is, well, that's the way it crumbles cookie wise. I just think that that's a really, a really cute line. And, uh, I like that a lot. And then the last comment I have for this sequence is, is it not a big deal that he's straining pasta through a tennis racket? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I don't understand why she walks in and she just says, Oh, you're straining pasta. And he's like, yep. And then that's it. (laughs) Just like, how is that not a big deal? He's that's just such a weird, it kind of confused me. It's, it's a weird character choice and I, or just plot choice, I guess. And I feel like if that is something that were to happen in the real world, I feel like the other person would just, automatically ask what are you doing why are you doing it that way that's kind of weird well they set it up earlier when she shows him the tennis racket and she's like why is this in the kitchen he's like oh i use that to strain pasta and she's like oh sure naturally oh i missed that okay that makes sense yeah 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 yeah. which oh my god jack lemon just like terribly singing in italian while straining pasta in the kitchen it's just hey it wasn't it wasn't that terrible. I thought it was sweet. It's very sweet. It's like you, you, yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. If How can you not just fall in love with him right there? If that's terrible opera singing, then lock me up because I don't sound <laughs> anything like that when I try to sing opera, which is every day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's pretty much all I got for that section. <laughs> yeah, which by the way, I'm so glad you brought up Cookie Wise because I was meaning to say the use of wise blank wise throughout this film is so funny to me i billy wilder man he's so his scripts they're so tight and the use of language is just so good it's this sort of weird jargony corporatized language that the managers use and then um baxter picks it up and just starts using it all the time and then fran starts picking it up and starts using it and just the way it travels um throughout the film is just it's so charming you know every time that they use it to each other she uses it at the end on sheldrake and sheldrake's like what are you talking about um yeah it's great yeah I, i i love these scenes the two of them just have such good chemistry um well, I think I've actually said everything I need to say about this section, so I'm just going to move on. <laughs> Great. Love it. Let's move on. This is quality content right here. Quality. Nothing but the best from the Your Pick Movie Podcast. <laughs> uh, all right. 
Back at work, Sheldrake fires Miss Olson for telling Fran about his affairs, and so she tells Sheldrake's wife everything. Finally forced to face the prospect of divorce, Sheldrake reaffirms his plan to marry Fran. At the same time, as a thank you for taking care of Fran and for remaining discreet, he promotes Baxter to become his assistant. Baxter is at first excited about the position, but when he realizes that Sheldrake continues to expect him to loan at his apartment, Baxter decides to quit and to finally become a mensch. That night, at a New Year's Eve party, Sheldrake mentions that Baxter quit his job and refused to loan him the key to the apartment. Fran is overjoyed. She leaves the party and runs to Baxter's apartment. On the way up the stairs, she hears what sounds like a gunshot, and she's horrified. But Baxter opens the door holding an open champagne bottle, perfectly fine. Inside, Fran discovers that Baxter has decided to move out of his apartment and to start over. They sit down to resume their game of gin rummy, and Fran says that she's left Sheldrake. Baxter tells Fran that he adores her, and she responds with the absolutely iconic final line, Shut up and deal. Ah, uh, um... Yeah, this ending is just, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Their chemistry is so good. Um, the look on Shirley MacLaine's face when Sheldrake tells her that Baxter quit his job and refused to give him the key to the apartment, the sort of just absolute joy that comes over her face when before she'd been sitting in this uh, at this party, clearly miserable, clearly knowing that she's making the wrong choice, but kind of feeling trapped in where she is and unable to figure out how to dig herself out. And then all of a sudden it's like this lifeline has been offered to her and the scene of her running down the street and her kind of fur coat and her new year's dress and her, you know, new year's garland kind of falling off of her. Just so excited to get to him. I mean, this is, I think why I call the movie a, you know, why I think of this movie is at, at least, related, you know, at least an ancestor of the the rom-com genre as we think about it. It's because this is such a rom-com ending, you know? And I I say that as a 100% a, a compliment and endorsement of it. You know, this is what we, the stuff that a great rom-com is made out of. You know, you these two people that you really, truly care about and have seen grow and change and rooting for finally getting together and finally you know, there, there's a sense of hope and optimism um, about their pairing. And yeah, it's just, it's so joyful. And then, but then the the ending line, how um, just kind of casual and unsentimental, but also sweet it is, you know, he's giving her this whole speech about how much he adores her. And she's just like, no, shut up and deal. Like, let's just move on and let's just, you know, start living our lives you know, finally be together, finally start um, figuring out what's next for each of us. It's just, it's so perfect. Tatum, what are your thoughts on on this ending? Um, yeah, so this this last section, uh, again, I don't really have too much, too much to say. Um, I highlighted two quotes, though. Um, one of them is, I don't remember in what, at what point this happens, but there's one point where the doctor is in Baxter's apartment again, and he just says, it's like my favorite line that he says, because he says it multiple times, but just let me get my bag. Because he's like, oh, I got to go get my doctor's bag. I'll be right back. And I just think it's really, I just think that's funny how his line is always just let me get my bag. Um, and then there's also another conversation. I think it's when Baxter's talking to, I don't know if he's talking to Sheldrake. I think he's talking to Sheldrake. 
And Sheldrake goes, you dig? And uh, <laughs> to me, that just feels like such a such a 1980s, early 1990s thing to say in like an urban really? type. I don't know. I just, yeah, I just found it to be interesting that that came out of Sheldrake's mouth. He's talking about this whole elaborate thing. Then he just goes, you dig? <laughs> I and think of it as such a then, 60s thing to say. That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Um, but yeah. And then the last thing that I, the last comment that I have is as much as, as much as Baxter and Fran's relationship, I think is really cute. I also think that she needs to learn how to be single for a while because <laughs> it sounds like she's kind of been moving around and she always dates the wrong men and da 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 da. da. And I'm just like, girl. I think you need to figure out who you are without a man for a while, but you know, okay. So it's, I don't know. And I'm sure at some point we'll kind of get into a little bit more about my relationship with rom with rom-coms. Cause, cause my thought is like, yes, it's romantic. And yes, it's the ending that we all want to see, but also is this the healthiest decision for this person to be making? Probably not. I don't think so. Especially if he's planning on moving. What? what? What are you going to do? I don't know. We don't necessarily know if he's moving out of the city. He could just be moving apartments. But still, in my mind, I'm just thinking, girl, you need you need to learn how to – you just need to figure out who you are without being in a relationship because, as everyone knows, you can't, you can't get to know someone else in a real way until you really know yourself. So, yeah. I know that's not uh, the most romantic – ending comment that people want to hear but for me that that was my takeaway i was like girl <laughs> you need to tell him no like, be like hey that's really sweet thank you for caring for me i think it's best for me to like kind of figure out my shit first and then you know we'll circle back around to this later <laughs> wow thank you for pouring water all over the ending <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome world <laughs> Oh. Just just wait until we have to talk about an actual full on rom com. That's that's oh gonna boy. be that's gonna be a time. I would say I'm I will sure convert you, chosen. except I have no faith in my ability to do that. I don't think anything is. I don't think you're yeah possible for you to be converted. Yeah, but they're great. We've been friends long enough for you. To to anyone listening, <laughs> let no one convince you otherwise. Exactly. If you if you love rom coms, hey, I'm here for it. That's great. Love that story for you. I'm just not a fan. <laughs> I, let me just say, though. Yes. Let me just say real quick. That being said, there are some romantic movies that I do like. So I don't want to say across right. the board, oh, yeah, I hate all romantic movies. There there are some. And actually, in a few episodes, we'll be talking about one that I love. Um, yeah. And you, you don't hate romance. You're just not a fan of the no. genre. Yeah. And at some point, we'll be talking about Bright Star, which. <sighs> Bright Star. <sighs> love that movie so much so good um one thing that i really love is um i really love the scene where baxter quits because there's something so low-key about it the way it's sort of staged is um you know in some movies there might be you know, Baxter realizes what's going on. He realizes that Sheldrake is never going to change and he will just have to continue to sit by and continue to be complicit in this. And so he'll give this rousing speech about, you know, how terrible he is and kind of throw it all in Sheldrake's face. But he just, he throws down the key. He walks out. We cut to his office next door. Where he just 
I think he maybe closes a book that's on his desk. And then he goes to the the closet and starts getting out his hat and coat. And Sheldrake comes in. He's like, hey, you gave me the wrong key. And Sheldrake's like, or uh, Baxter's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> gave you the right key because I quit. And then he just walks out. You know, it's it's very, it's very cool <laughs> in the sense of being very, you know, decided and self-possessed. And for this character that you know, up till now has been such a pushover. You know, he's been, he's just incapable of saying no. He's incapable of standing up for himself. He's sort of incapable of having his own kind of thoughts and opinions about things. You know, he's constantly um, copying the speech patterns, the, the, the thought patterns, the, um, the attitudes, the, um, just the, the lifestyle of the higher-ups at his company who he idolizes. You know, he wants to be them. Now he finally has learned how to be his own person. You know, he's become a mensch, <laughs> to quote Dr. Dreyfus. Um, and it's, it's just a great scene. And that's the same journey I want for Fran. She needs to figure out who she is apart from other people. That's what Baxter did. Now Fran needs to do that. <laughs> Do you think that um, do you think that Baxter would be harmful to Fran in her journey to uh, discovering who she is or becoming a better person? I, I don't get the sense that Fran is someone who has never been alone. I think she actually, when she talks about her backstory, she mentions that when she she's been in the city for a few years, and it wasn't until I don't think she was dating anyone until she started dating Sheldrake. So I don't think it's that she's never been alone. I think it's more that when she is in a relationship, she just tends to gravitate toward relationships with bad men. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I can't necessarily speak to the latter comment because that's all speculation. I guess we don't necessarily know how much she was in relationships before Sheldrake. I think there is an interpretation where you could say she was consistently in relationships, but then there's also an interpretation where you could say she wasn't. So I don't really know as far as that. Uh, As far as the first question, though, no, I don't think he would treat her poorly at all. I think that he would be in support of that. Um, But, you know, I still think that it's important to learn how to be by yourself for a while. And even if you've had moments of singleness in the past, if you've been through a bunch of toxic relationships since then consistently, you probably should take some time as well instead of like this man that you were in love with who said he was going to leave his wife for you. That seems pretty serious. And then it, it ends and then immediately you start dating someone else. I don't know, but that the, I don't know. It, it doesn't actually matter because <laughs> these are just my thoughts and we don't know what happens after this movie and who knows, maybe they'd be fine, but I don't know. It, it doesn't ultimately matter is what I'm saying. <laughs> 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 the movie is what it is and it ends where it ends and they say what they say. So, mm-hmm. you know, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, this is really random, but in the scene where Miss Olsen gets fired by Sheldrake and she goes scorched earth and she tells Sheldrake's wife everything, which is such a power move. <laughs> I really love her coat and hat. <laughs> she has this adorable coat and hat that is like sort of cheetah print. Um, like the collar of the coat is cheetah print and the hat is cheetah print. I think it's anyway. Sorry. I was just like slightly drooling over, <laughs> over the clothing. I'll get you movie. a faux fur one for your birthday. Yes. Then you can wear it all the time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. So um, that's pretty much it that I've got on the movie. Do you have any other random um, thoughts that you haven't talked about? Actually, one thing I don't think I've said yet is, 
you know, I, I watch this movie with captions on as I watch most things. And I was just struck by how many pop culture references there were in the script. You know, this is a movie that's very much kind of could only take place, not could only take place because you could rewrite, remake this movie and have it be set in another time and place. But the script is very much, you know, this was written and filmed in 1960. You know, they, um, you know, Baxter goes to see The Music Man, which was um, on Broadway at the time. And, you know, his his neighbor makes a reference to beatniks. And, um, you know, there's just all these kind of new technologies that they're using at a very particular time. Um, yeah, it's just a very sort of a movie that's very much grounded and set in a very particular time and place, which I was very struck by. And actually, uh, on a similar note, I came... Um, I found this one piece of trivia in IMDb that just kind of cracked me up. Um, it's a little bit long, so I'm going to abridge it while I, re I read it, but it reads, um, although this film continues to find new generations of viewers who love it, many of the objects seen are nearly obsolete in 2022. These include adding machines, typewriters, LP records, rotary dial telephones, desk pen sets, small screen analog televisions, um, switchboard and elevator operators, milk delivery, and a multitude of others. On the other hand, club sandwiches, cocktails, dive bars, frozen microwavable meals, insurance, infidelity, cheese crackers, TV remotes, and the love of classic mu movies continue to be staples of everyday life. And New York City will always be New York City. Just thought that was kind of funny. Again, just the the locations, the the production design, the the look of the apartment. It is it is very very New York City, very kind of um located in a you know a a place that would have been familiar to a lot of people who are watching the movie at the time we got to get some some good movies that are or e that are chicago proud i feel like there's movies that are this is la this is new york this is I, gosh i don't even know what others miami or whatever i feel like there aren't very many that are full of chicago pride yeah, not a whole lot out there. There are a few good ones, but not as, not nearly as many. All right, so um, this movie, The Apartment, was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, and it won five, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Uh, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine were both nominated for Best Actor and Best Actress. Uh, it was also received very positively by critics, both at the time and to this day. Um, currently, it's listed on Metacritic at an, as a 94. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's 93% fresh. Um, I There are not a whole lot of reviews out there from reviewers from back in 1960, but I did find one from Bosley Crowther, the um, famous critic from the New York Times, um, who... Uh, reviewed a lot of movies of this time period. And I thought his characterization of the movie was very interesting. Um, he writes um, in, in one section, Mr. Wilder has done more than write the film. His direction is ingenious and sure, sparkled by brilliant little touches and kept to a tight sardonic line. In addition to Mr. Lemons, there's a splendid performance by Shirley MacLaine as the daffy girl who gets into a lot of trouble and a good one by Fred McMurray as the wicked boss. So I... <laughs> That's an interesting take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I definitely agree with him on the brilliance of uh, 
Billy Wilder's direction and uh, the tightness of the story. But um, I would not describe Shirley MacLaine's character as uh, Daffy at all. Um, I think she's kind of the opposite of that. And Fred McMurray, I mean, he is wicked, but um, I don't know. I feel like his characterization of it is kind of flattening the movie in a way, flattening a movie that actually has a lot of nuance and humanity to its characters. You know, there's they're extremely flawed people and some of them are really, really awful, but they're not, you know, they're not one dimensional, at least to me. Um, Roger Ebert, um, you know, another great, great critic, um, wrote a review of this movie in, back in 2001. He gave it four out of four stars and he wrote, one of the ways this is an adult picture and not a sitcom is the way it takes Baxter and Miss Kubelik so long to make the romantic leap. They aren't deluded fools, but jaded realists who have given up on love and are more motivated by paychecks. There's a wonderful, wicked delicacy in the way Wilder handles the final scene and finds the right tender, tough note in the last lines of the screenplay. So I, I really like that. Um, I think it speaks well to the dynamics of the movie, where it is this sort of, you know, the, the quest for love and the valuing of love and companionship and community versus the valuing of um, paychecks, of money, of status, of working your way up the, the, um, the ladder. I think it does a really great job of depicting the sort of lonely single life in, you know, New York, but it could be any city really, you know, Baxter doesn't seem to have any sort of family. There isn't, there isn't a whole lot of community within his life. There aren't a whole lot of people who are depending on him or checking in with him. And so as a result, the only thing that he has to work for is just trying to work his way up the ladder, trying to make it, trying to get the life that, you know, advertisements and the, you know, the glamorous um, lifestyle of the people above him, you know, promise that those things will make him happy. Um, but they don't. And, you know, his journey is, is discovering that, that sort of, um, a, a warmer, you know, maybe less glamorous, but um, more caring uh, way of living life is ultimately uh, much more fulfilling. And um, yeah, it's just very sort of gentle and um, humanistic in the ending, I think. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on these? Uh, my only thought is Roger Ebert sure has a way with words. He really does. Or did. Yes. R.I.P. Um, so Geneva, can I ask you, mm. what was the part of this movie that really did it for you when you, when you first saw it or the second time you saw it, what, what scene or what moment really, really solidified it for you? It's really hard to say, <laughs> which I, I feel, feel like, like is my response every week. <laughs> every week. I think it might be a, just a difference in the way that you and I process movies, um, where there are sometimes scenes that will stick out in my mind, but that's not always the case. You know, sometimes it's more, a movie is more the, the accumulation of many things and it's really hard to pick something out. But I do feel like the, the image, there are two images that kind of get stuck in my brain a lot when I think about this movie. Um, they're both of Fran. One is her lying on the bed in this really, really beautifully shot and composed scene where, you know, Baxter gets home in his apartment and he's going to throw, um, I think it's like a pair of gloves or something into the bedroom. And he opens the door really quickly and it's the, the camera is looking at the bed and the door is in the foreground or in the background. Um, and he's kind of very quickly opens the door, throws it in this light 
shines in on Fran lying there. And then he closes the door again. And then his face changes and he suddenly realizes that something is wrong. And I think that that's sort of the way that her body is framed in that um, as sort of this almost sacrificial lamb type of offering, you know, this sort of there's something very kind of classically tragic about it. I think it's just it's very beautiful and heartbreaking. And then the the shot close to the end when um Fran is sitting in the the restaurant trying to have fun at the New Year's Eve party and failing and she realizes that she loves Baxter and her face just changes and all of a sudden her look looking so miserable goes to her looking so full of hope. I think that's just such beautiful acting and such such a beautiful um you know image. So, um yeah, is there anything in this movie that you would say that you were kind of particularly struck by or moved by? No. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> I had to think about that one. Like I said, I'm very lukewarm on this film. Mm-hmm. I- I'm very, very neutral about it. I don't have any strong feelings that are overwhelmingly negative or overwhelmingly positive. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go with the very neutral uh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I should have gone second, but. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> That's all right, you know, different different tastes. So uh, Tatum, do you want to reveal what film we're going to be covering in the next episode? Yeah, so this week Geneva chose The Apartment. Next week I have chosen for us to discuss Straight Out of Compton. Uh, it is a film that I really love and uh, unfortunately a movie that a, not a lot of people that I know have seen uh, and I don't think Geneva's seen it either. So should be a good discussion. Yet another time we will be coming in or I will be coming in not knowing what Geneva's reaction will be. So And I don't know what stay my tuned, be. guys. Yeah. <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time. See you later.